This is World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris. My guest today is perhaps the only celebrity I've ever met who has rendered me speechless. It happened when I was 21. It was at a TV taping for some show in Canada. And at a commercial break, this musician walked around greeting guests. And when he got to me, I was so overwhelmed that this artist I loved my entire life, this person who had so deeply influenced my musical tastes and my sense of humor was really there in the flesh looking at me that all I could muster was a weak, hey, that was the first time I met Weird Al Yankovic. Thankfully, in the intervening years, I've had some time to gather my thoughts, and today, Weird Al Yankovic joins me for a far more enlightening conversation than our previous one. We get into the new movie about his life, Weird, the Al Yankovic story, which is appropriately a parody of the music biopic, and we talk about his long, successful career as it actually happened. And that's not all. We also talk about his songwriting, both parody and the original non-parody songs he's been out performing on his tour called The Unfortunate Return of the Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Ill-Advised Vanity Tour. There's also a new graphic novel out called The Illustrated Al, Songs of Weird Al Yankovic. Our conversation in just a moment. First, a song that features prominently in the film Weird, the Al Yankovic story, his first breakthrough hit, Weird Al Yankovic, My Olona. This is World Cafe. My name is Raina Duras, and that was my guest today, Weird Al Yankovic, with My Bologna, from the soundtrack to the film Weird, a fictional account of Yankovic's life. Al, welcome to the World Cafe. <laughs> Thank you, Raina. I'm so thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. The movie was so much fun, and we're going to talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff, but uh, we started with My Bologna, because that was your debut single in 1979. Um, it's also where things really start to take off in the universe of the film, in a scene where you and your friends are listening to My Sharona by the Neck, and divine inspiration strikes you, and then you're on your way to being a big star. I know in reality, you know, getting a music career started wasn't, you know, it's not quite so linear or cut and dried. You went to school, you worked day jobs. Is there any part of you that wishes success was as quick and easy as it appears in the film? <laughs> well, you know, I was pretty lucky. I mean, it certainly wasn't uh, as literally overnight uh, as, as it was in the movie. Uh, but I had a couple of years where I was like, you know, working minimum wage, you know, in a mail room. And, and uh, you know, it kept me humble. I, 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 I didn't mind that. I, you know, I, I did manage to make a living doing uh, music and comedy uh, a lot quicker than I, I was anticipating. I mean, I was uh, 22, 23, I think, when I got my record deal. So a couple years out of college, but uh, it wasn't so bad. I mean, I, I just feel uh, e extremely uh, grateful uh, that I get to do what I do for a living. Well, let's rewind a bit to before you got that record deal. You grew up in Linwood, California, in the L.A. area. Close proximity to Hollywood and all of that. What kind of sway 
did showbiz hold over young Al's mind? I never anticipated that I would, uh, you know, grow up and have any kind of actual career in show business. But I think the fact that I lived in Los Angeles, uh, you know, a suburb of Los Angeles, that that probably played into part of it because maybe if I lived in Nebraska or Iowa, I wouldn't have given it a shot. But I was in L.A. already and I thought, oh, you know, I'll come go to Hollywood and I'll knock on some doors and I'll send out some demo tapes. And I'll it, it gave me a little bit more impetus to, like, you know, take a shot. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I certainly never would have said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to fly to L.A. and <laughs> take my chances. I would never have done that. Well, in the film, your parents, they're not very supportive of your decision to play music at first. And uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie, maybe where I laughed out loud the very first time, was when your mom says, your dad and I had a long talk and we agreed it would be best for all of us if you just stopped being who you are and doing the things you love. (laughs) (laughs) How supportive were your parents in real life when you first started playing music? They they were the exact opposite. My parents were very, very supportive. I I, I won't say that they encouraged me to get into show business. In fact, my mom uh, told me uh, at a few points early on uh, to stay out of Hollywood because there are evil people there. Really? And she's not wrong. (laughs) But but I I think they were maybe a little bit uh, nervous uh, about me traveling in those circles. But they knew that I was, uh, you know, a smart kid and I wasn't going to fly off the handle or or do something really incredibly stupid. So I I think they were never really worried about me. But I think they're always a little anxious about their young child, you know, in, in that world. What kind of music were you hearing around the house? Like, did your parents listen to a lot of music? Not really. I mean, you know, um... Yeah, I, I think I, I listened to music on, on the car radio, uh, and that was about it. I mean, I, my, my parents didn't really have much of a record collection. I remember very early on uh, when I would ask my mom for money to, to buy a record, she'd say, what, what do you need that for? You can just listen to listen to it on the radio. It's for free on the radio. <laughs> so so we, we didn't have a whole lot of music in the house, uh, but when I was in, in my early teens, I started listening to Top 40 radio, and slightly after that, listened to uh, KMET and KLOS in L.A., which were the, the uh, album-oriented rock stations. I got my musical education sort of on my own. I'm going to talk about a different kind of musical education because you got your first accordion from a traveling salesman in 1966, which does happen in the movie, though it happens um, slightly differently than I'm assuming it happened <laughs> in real life. Uh, at this point in time, it's kind of hard to imagine a traveling salesman, let alone a traveling accordion salesman. When that guy came to the door, were you like, mom and dad, I want this? Or were they like, Al, you're going to play the accordion now? Well, I I was six years old at the time, so my memories are a little hazy on this. I can't imagine I was begging my parents for accordion lessons. I don't (laughs) think I was jumping up and down saying, oh boy, an accordion. Uh, But but my parents made that life-altering decision for me. It was basically, I mean, they didn't come to the house literally with an accordion, I don't think, like the guy in the movie. Uh, But it was basically a guy trying to drum up business for his music school, and they were offering accordion lessons and guitar lessons. And as a young child of the 60s, my parents thought, oh, well, of course, accordion lessons. (laughs) I mean, why not? Be the life of every party. Why not? What is the first song they teach you when you're a kid learning accordion? You know, they they don't teach you Stairway to Heaven. They don't they don't teach you any like pop songs or rock songs. Um, I mean, the first the first uh, several things are, 
you know, just little public domain things. It's mostly classical pieces and polkas. That's basically what they teach you. So, you know, obviously there's the stuff you have to learn to play when you're learning an instrument, but there's also the stuff you want to learn to play, like contemporary rock songs. What did you want to play? What songs were you learning by ear? Well, um, I took lessons for three years, like from ages seven to 10. And, and then I quit and I kind of put the accordion away for a while, but I, it, it, the, the muse was calling and I, I picked it up and I started playing along with uh, the songs that I heard on the radio. Or um, I, I think the first rock album I ever bought was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. And I, I learned how to play every song on that album by ear. And by what I would also write out the chord charts and everything. And I kind of learned rock chord progressions and, you know, educated myself that way. And, and I got pretty good at just picking things up by ear. So that, that was sort of like, you know, me moving away or at least putting aside the polkas and the, uh, the classical pieces and, and like seeing if I could rock out on the accordion. I'm going to play a clip right now. Um, pick a song. What was your favorite song from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road to play on the accordion? Uh, well, I don't think you're going to play the whole thing, but uh, Funeral for a Friend, which opens the album, is a long instrumental piece, which actually sounded, I thought, pretty cool on the accordion. Here's Funeral for a Friend from Elton John on World Cafe. Cafe. That was Elton John Funeral for a Friend. You can imagine that being played on accordion by my guest today, Weird Al Yankovic. One of the first songs that you ever wrote yourself was called Belvedere Cruising. Uh, and you, you can find an early demo of Belvedere Cruising online. But please uh, don't. I, I, I was going to play a little, but first I was. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm sorry. I have to do it. What, what can you tell us about writing Belvedere Cruising? Well, this is back in the days when uh, I was literally recording in my bedroom on a little cheesy cassette tape recorder on a uh, 39 cent compact cassette. And, you know, I was maybe 15, 16 years old. I don't know. Uh, poorly recorded, poorly written, poorly performed. But Dr. Demento saw something novel in the fact that there was this kid playing the accordion and thinking he was cool or funny. Um, and it was a song uh, about our family car. We had a... a uh, a big black 1964 Plymouth Belvedere with uh, with red upholstery and push-button transmission. So it was just basically a love song about our car. Here it is, Belvedere Cruising from Weird Al Yankovic. You won't find a bragging about my big green station wagon Or telling about the traffic laws are breaking Everybody knows that I wouldn't dare Match my wits with a red Corvair And just the thought of a Pinto leaves me shaking Now I don't think that I could hack Driving a big white Cadillac With ripped up upholstery and the necessary thrill No, I don't think that I could bear Find something other than a Belvedere And a Belvedere I could really get my thrills 
A very early Weird Al song, Belvedere Cruising. I got, uh, I got better. I got better. <laughs> <laughs> that song, I, I guess that was like the, the first, one of the first songs you played on the Dr. Demento show. I think it was the very first, yeah. Yeah. And Dr. Demento is played by Rain Wilson very, very well in, in the movie Weird. Uh, what are your earliest memories of listening to Dr. Demento? Why did you connect with what he was doing? I heard people on the Dr. Mano show that I wasn't hearing anywhere else. I mean, nobody else on the radio was playing Spike Jones or Alan Sherman or Stan Freeberg or Tom Lehrer. Uh, that's sort of my Mount Rushmore of comedy influences. And, uh, you know, they were all popular, you know, before my time, the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And, and uh, it really opened my eyes and made me think, wow, this is really, really cool. And uh, I, Dr. Demento also played some stuff that was a little risque, some some double entendre material, uh, which my mother was horrified by. In fact, she was at one point, uh, she, she at one point forbade me from listening to the show. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I had to listen in secret. I had to, you know, like in the movie, like in the movie, uh, uh, I pulled the covers up over my head at night <laughs> and listened to the Dr. Demento show on a little alarm clock radio. Forbidden forbidden Dr. Demento. I mean, in the film, he's kind of like your your manager. In real life, could you talk about the impact that he had, that Dr. Demento had on your on your early career? Uh, well, Dr. Demento was never uh, actually my manager. My manager for the last 40 years plus has been uh, Jay Levy. Uh, but Dr. Demento had an enormous impact on my life. Like I said, there's nobody else in the world who would play this kind of material and play my stuff on the radio. This is obviously before YouTube or the internet as we know it. Uh, so this was the only exposure I would potentially ever get was on the Dr. Romano show at the time. Uh, and because of that early exposure and, uh, promotion and encouragement, uh, it led me to, you know, consider this as a serious, you know, career option. Uh, so Dr. Romano in a very real way changed the course of my life and, uh, and, you know, I, I, I think if he had not existed in this world, I would at this point probably, you know, be an adult, have a real job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I heard that uh, Dr. Demento actually went to the real one, went to see the movie in his full like top hat and tails. What was his reaction? Uh, he loved it. I, I think he was a little nervous. I don't know if we ever gave him a full copy of the script beforehand because we, you know, we wanted to keep everything under wraps. He was nervous at first because we took obviously extreme liberties with the truth. And, you know, there, there are nuggets sprinkled throughout the movie of, of truth, but most of it's made up. Uh, and and he was a little concerned <laughs> by some of the parts of the movie, like, because people are gullible and some people will believe anything. And he didn't want people really thinking that he spiked my guacamole with LSD, <laughs> for example. Uh, but but I, I hopefully calmed him down and I explained that, you know, I think people are going to realize it's a parody. It's all in good fun and nobody's really going to think that. This is World Cafe. I'm speaking with Weird Al Yankovic today. The movie Weird is a fictionalized parody account of his life. Another One Rides the Bus was another one of your early hits on The Dr. Demento Show. It's a parody of Queen, Another One Bites the Dust. Here's how it sounded back then. Another one rides the bus. Uh. Another one rides the bus. Uh. And another comes on, and another comes on. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you. Another one rides the bus. And it appears in one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, and, and the scene is a play on the music biopic trope of the swanky industry pool party. Uh, and you, played by Daniel Radcliffe, are challenged to write a song parody on the spot. You re-recorded all of the songs for the film. Um, 
taking another one rides the bus as an example, were there changes that you made to the new version just to illustrate the scene or was it an excuse to make something that more fits with how you hear the song now? We, uh, for the most part, we tried to recreate the songs uh, almost identical to what they were originally because, you know, we wanted them to be uh, authentic, but at the same time we had to re-record them because uh, we didn't want them to sound like studio recordings. Like, you know, one song had to sound like it was like in an outdoor party. One song had to sound like it was in a biker bar. One song had to sound like it was in a huge auditorium. So it was important that we re-record it. Um, and so for another one, Rise of Us, we tried to make it as authentic as possible, but we also had to change the order and the number of the sound effects because we had various people in the party doing them. So, so basically, basically, uh, I recorded the basic tracks and the vocal, so that Dan and the other guys could could um, could lip sync and mime to it, and then I uh, looped in all the other sound effects after the fact once we knew what the picture was going to be. And the part where he's uh, playing drums on the accordion case—that is actually based in truth. That's one of the nuggets of truth in the movie. Yes, I mean the original recording of Another One Rides the Bus was my uh, drummer John Bermuda Schwartz literally banging banging on my accordion case for percussion. And that was the night that I met my drummer. That was September 14th, 1980. I met him live on the Dr. Romano show. Uh, I, I said, I need somebody to bang on my accordion case. And he said, I'm a drummer. I'll do it. And uh, he's been drumming with me for the last 43 years. We're going to hear the uh, soundtrack version of Another One Rides the Bus. Here's Weird Al on World Cafe. There's a suitcase poking me in the ribs. There's an elbow in my ear. There's a smelly old bum standing next to me. He hasn't showered in a year. Well, I think I'm missing a contact list. I think my wallet's gone. And I think this bus is stopping again. I'll let a couple more freaks get on. Look out! Another one rides the bus. Another one rides the bus. And another comes on. And another comes on. Another one rides the bus. Hey, he's gonna sit by you. Another one rides the bus. Another one rides the bus, as it sounds in Weird, the parody account of Weird Al's life. It's a movie out right now. Uh, Weird Al's my guest today on World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris. That song appears during a pool party in the movie, and it's attended by people like Tiny Tim and Gallagher and Frank Zappa and Divine and Pee Wee Herman and Salvador Dali. Um, these, there's, some, there's a common thread there. There are all these remarkable personalities who have a very definite look. Um, and you have always had a look as well, the Hawaiian shirt, the long curly hair, uh, for parts of your career, the mustache. Who was it that first made you realize that it was important for an entertainer to have a uniform? I don't know that it was something that was conscious. I mean, I looked the way I looked. I mean, I just, <laughs> I had the glasses, I had the mustache, I had the hair. I liked wearing Hawaiian shirts, but it wasn't some calculated thing like, oh, I need to have an image, I need to have a brand. You know, that it was just some the way I looked. And it just, you know, it became, you know, a Halloween costume. Like to this day, you know, hundreds of people dress up like me for Halloween. And it's almost always the 80s look. There's something, I, I guess, iconic about that, that look with the glasses and the mustache. <laughs> Um, in the film, you're played by Daniel Radcliffe, uh, who's not only made up to look like you, he acts out playing the accordion, which is its own whole thing he had to learn. What is it like trying to cast yourself and train someone to be like you? 
<laughs> well, I we didn't train him so much. He, Daniel's not doing an impersonation per se. We we try to you know Daniel is not an exact doppelganger. He doesn't look exactly like me. Uh, but we we tried to make him look as close as possible. The I think the only thing that we asked for is that he do an American accent because we wanted him to sound you know we wanted to suspend a little bit of disbelief. Uh, but he wasn't doing an owl impression. He was basically doing a version of the owl as portrayed in the script. Uh, to his credit, he decided to, uh, to take accordion lessons. He had a friend of his uh, named Pete who worked with him in New York. And then when he came to L.A., I gave him a few personal lessons. And I, I wouldn't say that he's ready to give a private concert, but he <laughs> he learned enough so that it looks like he's really playing. He's For the three or four people that know, he's actually playing the right buttons <laughs> on the accordion. Because it, it always bugs me when I see people playing accordion in TV and movies. And it's so obvious to me. And and uh, it, it meant, meant a lot to me that he cared enough to at least made it to, to make it look like he's playing the accordion. I thought it was interesting that of all the roles in the film, because, you know, you could have played anyone. You decided to play a stuffy record executive. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is uh, that in the original Funny or Die video that the movie is based on, that's the part that I played. Uh, I, I was cast to play the record executive. And when we were casting the the, the movie, I thought, well, might as well reprise my role. It's because we got to add all these kind of like winking jokes about like me turning myself down for a record deal and me being uncomfortable when Will Forte, who plays the other record executive, goes on a diatribe about how awful and untalented and ugly Weird Al is, and I you get to see me kind of squirming in my seat, so we thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, I feel like being um, a parody songwriter before you were weird, like before people had a world with Weird Al in it, and you were going out and pitching this idea, it might have been a harder sell. W were there any memorable things you were told by record executives that you were thinking about while doing that? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, everybody thought what I did was funny. Some thought it was brilliant, but nobody wanted to uh, pull the trigger. Nobody wanted to sign me. I, I I was told a few times, "Oh, this is great, but you're you're a one hit wonder." You know, I had like my balone, and they said, "Oh, well, that's the high point of your life. Enjoy it." You know, because <laughs> because that was sort of, historically that was sort of what happened with with people that did funny music, uh, uh, also called novelty music, which you know. I understand the term. It's kind of a disparaging term because it implies what and it wonder. It implies, yeah. you know, here's your big hit. You're, you know, here's your fluke in pop yeah, culture. Yeah, it's novel, and, and now we'll it's never, over. We'll never hear from you again. That's it. Thanks a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so the big irony of my career is uh, I've managed to last as long as I have. And a lot of the people that were huge in the 80s, uh, you know, you don't hear from so much <laughs> anymore. Yeah. My guest today on World Cafe is Weird Al Yankovic. I want to talk about uh, your songwriting now. When you listen to music, do you find yourself reflexively hearing the possible parody or, or trying to find the parody even when you're not intending to? I try not to. I mean, e even when I was laser focused on like the billboard charts and trying to figure out my next target, I try not to let that happen to my brain because I do enjoy music and I don't, I don't, I don't want to go through life, you know, thinking, how can I mess this one up? You know, because <laughs> I because I, I love music and I, I, I don't want to take that away. When you parody a song, I mean, you obviously write the lyrics, but you don't have the sheet music, I'm guessing, most of the time. So how does the band learn the parts? And get it so close uh, to the original. 
I, I've got a, an extremely talented band. I've had the same guys since the early 80s. Uh, we're still, you know, it's the same guys on the road, same guys on every single one of the albums. And they just they just uh, know their job. They know the drill. Like, you know, I, I will send them uh, an MP3 or I'll send them a CD and say, here, learn this. And uh, I may say, change the key or here's a di slightly different arrangement or, you know. Uh, and, and when we're doing the... Um, the, the original songs, the pastiches, sometimes they're in the style of another artist. So I will give them a full demo tape, but then I'll give them like 12 songs by that artist and say, here's the style we're going for. So, you know, kind of keep this in mind when you're working at your part. Uh, so it, it works to surround myself with a very, very talented people because it takes, you know, I don't have to do as much of the heavy lifting. One of the artists that um, you've parodied a couple times uh, and had some of your really big early hits with is Michael Jackson. And uh, we're going to hear Eat It in a minute. But many of your early hits, like My Bologna and Eat It and I Love Rocky Road, and uh, many of your songs after that, too, are about food, enough that you were able to put out a full album of just your food-related songs. Why is food such rich subject matter for parody songwriting? I don't know. I think in the 80s, people weren't writing a lot of songs about food. Uh, and, and food is, I, I think, inherently funny, I think in that context, at least. Um, and part of it may be because I was a starving artist for a while, so so food <laughs> was always on my mind. Uh, I, I don't know. It's just something that I came, came back to a lot. It wasn't my idea to put out the food album. I think my, my record label decided to do that sort of uh, against my objections at the time. But that also made me realize I should probably branch out and not write <laughs> quite so many songs about food. Okay, well, we're going to hear one. It is Eat It. It's Weird Hell Yankovic on World Cafe. Yankovic, my guest today on World Cafe. I'm Raina Duras. Um, there are several songs that I heard first or that I knew first as Weird Al parody songs. Um, there's lots of them. I tried to list them out and there's too many, but like, Hey Mickey I, and Hey Ricky, I knew Hey Ricky first. Uh, I knew this song is just six words long first. I knew uh, Gump first. There were lots. Uh, and I think, you know, it depends on the age that you kind of get to those songs as well. A lot of people learn the world through parodies, whether it's like with you or things like The Simpsons. Do you ever think about that when you're when you're working? Well, it's it's not what I, uh, at, at the forefront of my mind, but it's in in retrospect, it's it's very funny to me. I've, I've told the story a lot, but when I did my American Pie parody about Star Wars called The Saga Begins, uh, that came out in 1999. And, uh, you know, and, and that was very popular on Radio Disney and with, with young kids that didn't know the, the original Don McLean song, which came out in, I think, 1970. So it was like people, all these kids were thinking, oh, this is a great Weird Al song about Star Wars. And then the next year, uh, Madonna did like her, her like disco version of American Pie. And all these same kids were going like, why is Madonna doing like an unfunny version of a Weird Al song? 
very confusing for them. It's also funny. I mean, that song, I've never actually seen episode one, and I know the whole plot because of the second <laughs> <it's>. <laughs> there, there, There's some Star Wars fans that say, what is, is it the machete order? There, there's some order that you're supposed to watch the Star Wars movies in, and, and some versions of it saying, well, just skip ver, skip episode one and just listen to the Weird Al song, and then, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> you know, uh, it feels like there isn't the same kind of maybe monoculture as there was when you were kind of coming up and music is becoming more fragmented and more niche-y, does it get harder to find songs to parody that you know everybody will know? It, it is, uh, and it does. And and that's maybe one of the reasons why I haven't been extremely prolific in terms of parodies in the last uh, eight or nine years. Um, also, I'm just kind of giving it a, a rest because I've, I've done it my entire adult life. But yeah, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, certainly there are still hit songs and there are certainly superstars. But I don't think in the same way that there were those things uh, in the 80s, back when everybody watched MTV, they were obsessed with it, and, you know, there there, there weren't so many uh, options. I mean, now, I mean, I guess it's a good thing because uh, with the internet and with the all the satellite channels and everything else, now you can, uh, if you just want to listen to your very specific subgenre of music all the time, you can do that, but... Uh, I miss the days of, you know, early top 40 radio where people were exposed to every genre and people, I think, were more well-rounded in terms of their musical taste. And I wish we could get back to that, but I don't think, I think the genie's out of the bottle now. I'm speaking with Weird Al today on World Cafe. I want to talk about your first Billboard Top 10 single, uh, White and Nerdy, a parody of Chameleonaire's Raiden. When did you realize that that song was, like, exploding? Uh, when it hit the top 10. <laughs> no, I, I, it was one of those songs that I, I thought was good. I was proud of it and I thought it was really funny. But you never know how people are going to react to it because uh, I, I did a similar song uh, a, a decade earlier called It's All About the Pentiums, which was the same kind of thing. It was like, you know, uh, like a rap song about a, a person bragging about his uh, prowess and and his uh, familiarity with computers. And, and this was sort of in the same genre. It was the same kind of, it was like a, a nerd rap song. And I thought, you know, it's clever, it's funny, but I, di I didn't realize it was going to be as popular as it was. And part of that, I think, is because, uh, uh, to use a Mal Malcolm Gladwellism, we reached a tipping point uh, with nerds. I think around the time it came out, which was, I think, 2006, I think that was the exact moment when people were like, oh, nerds are actually cool. They make all the cool stuff. I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have been so mean to those nerds. They rule the world now. I remember when I first heard that and I was like, wait, being able to recite all of the Holy Grail is a cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because nowadays people brag about their nerd cred, which is something nobody did when I was in high school. That was yeah. not a thing. Um, I know Chameleon Air loved it. Um, there are a few parts in the verses where you're going very, very quickly. And I've always wondered... Did you speed that up, or can you actually rap that fast? That's a trade secret. Oh, okay. No, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I, I believe we probably did. Uh, I, I know for sure we we sped it up when we were doing the video because you know that's sort of a, a video trick. You want we want the the actions to be really sharp and crisp and and you know look a little frenetic. We we may have done that for part of the song as well. I, I honestly don't remember. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but you know, I do perform it live, so, I, so there's no <laughs> <Yeah>. speeding up there. <laughs> Here is Weird Al Yankovic, White and Nerdy on World Cafe. Roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on, roll on.
my segue I know in my heart they think I'm white and nerdy Think I'm just too white and nerdy Think I'm just too white and nerdy Can't you see I'm white and nerdy Look at me I'm white and nerdy I like to roll with the gangsters Although it's apparent I'm too white and nerdy Think I'm just too white and nerdy Think I'm just too white and nerdy I'm just too white and nerdy How'd I get so white and nerdy? I've been browsing, inspecting, X-Men, comics, you know I collect them The pins in my pocket, I must protect them My ergonomic keyboard never leaves me bored Shopping online for deals on some writable media I edit Wikipedia I memorize Holy Grail really well I can recite it right now and have you R-O-T-F-L-O-L I got a business doing websites Websites, websites. My friends need some code, who do they call? I do HTML for them all Even made a homepage for my doll Yo, I got myself a fanny pack They were having a sale down at the Gap In my nights with a roll of bubble wrap Pop, pop, hope no one sees me getting freaky I'm nerdy in the extreme and whiter than sour cream my guest today is Weird Al Yankovic on World Cafe. I'm Raina Duris. You're right in the middle of a tour right now. Um, it's called The Unfortunate Return of the Ridiculously Self-Indulgent Ill-Advised Vanity Tour, which is sort of the second round of this tour where you play mostly original songs. Why did you want to separate out those original songs and give them their own tour? I, this tour is it was uh, uh, kind of geared for more the hardcore fan because my entire life I've done these tours where I play the hits and I play, do the videos and I you know I I wore the costumes and it's it's a big multimedia show and I love doing that but uh, that means that you know eighty percent of my catalog never gets played live so so this tour was meant for those fans that have been hanging around for. 30, 40 years waiting for me to play that obscure track from my fourth album that they'd never heard me play before. Uh, and we tried it out the first time in 2018. That was the first iteration of the tour. Uh, and it was an experiment because I didn't know if anybody would show up, frankly. I think, does anybody really care? Does anybody want to hear this? And, and we sold out virtually everywhere. And that gave me the uh, confidence to bring it back. So uh, I don't know if we'll ever do it again. Uh, but this has been really fun for me and fun for the band uh, to kind of like just kind of hang out and you know, be musicians and not, you know, it's still a high energy show, but it's not so much about the spectacle, it's about the music. Yeah. I mean, you've done um, lots of originals that aren't uh, straight up parodies, that are style parodies, uh, like Genius in France, a song in the style of Frank Zappa, or Dare to be Stupid in the style of Devo. Why are there artists you decide to parody stylistically instead of choosing a specific song? Uh, a lot of the the past issues are, are uh, of bands and artists that I just personally really like. I mean, some of them are very famous and some of them are quite obscure. Uh, I've done two uh, uh, pastiches of Tony O'Kay, who, who, who <laughs> I, I love, but yeah. a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with Tony O'Kay. Uh, so it's, it's, it's all just a, it's, it's a personal thing. Like, you know, yeah. if, if there's somebody, because I basically have to study an artist's entire oeuvre, their entire body of work, and really pick it apart and try to find out what are the little synchronicities that make this artist who he or she is? So that's a lot of effort. So I don't want to spend that much effort on somebody who I'm ambivalent about. I don't know. It might be hard to pick a favorite, but is there an artist that you especially enjoyed, you know, digging into their catalog and coming up with a pastiche for them? It, it, that'd be hard to say. I mean, I think I think probably my famous and most popular uh, original is Dare to be Stupid, which was a Devo Pastiche. I'm a huge Devo fan, so I if if I if I had gun to my head, if I had to choose, I'd probably say that. Here's Dare to Be Stupid. It's Weird Al Yankovic on World Cafe.
on World Cafe. My guest today, Weird Al Yankovic. That was Dare to be Stupid. Uh, you, you also write originals that aren't style parodies, and there are lots of them, uh, which includes a favorite of mine, the 12-minute-long Albuquerque. Uh, and I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I used to have it memorized the entire way through. Uh, and I mean, obviously, when you're writing an original, you don't start um, with melody or music that already kind of exists. How does your writing process differ from when you're working on a parody? Um, it's, you know, th there's a lot more uh, uh, ways to go with it. So it's it's uh, a little hard in a way because there aren't any parameters. I can literally do anything. Uh, and even a lot of the quote-unquote original songs start out as pastiches. I mean, again, um, most people don't know the Rugburns, but it's that was they influenced uh, Albuquerque as well as Mojo Nixon, uh, a little bit of George Thurgood, a little bit of Frank Zappa. There were a lot of influences on that particular song. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, it's it's uh, it's still an original composition. It's it's just something that was inspired by a lot of different uh, uh, different people. Um, but yeah, it's it's, it's tough doing the the originals because, like like I said, when I do the the parodies. Basically, I can send a CD to the band and say, here, learn this. And with the originals, I mean, I have to go through an entire actual songwriting process and actually create demos, and there's a lot more work involved. While I was preparing this interview, I, I noticed a trend. I was also reading through the graphic uh, novel that just came out where people have illustrated your songs called The Illustrated Al, The Songs of Weird Al Yankovic. And in a lot of your original songs, there are a lot of characters that are like deeply uh, unhinged, or prone to sudden cartoon violence. Um, I'm thinking of like, why does this always happen to me? Um, you know, one more minute, good old days, the night Santa went crazy. I mean, even in Albuquerque, I think, uh, I mean, there's weasels that bite off someone's face, but, you know, cutting off someone's arms and legs with a chainsaw. There are lots of these things. And you, by all accounts, and you seem right now like a very nice guy. Is there a dark side to Weird Al? Is there? A, is this a way? Why are you so attracted to these uh, sudden bursts of cartoon violence? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I noticed this particularly on this on this Vanity tour because a lot of my original songs get very dark, and I don't know why. I mean, I like yeah, I'm a happy guy. I don't think I have any inner demons. I mean, I maybe I should go. To, I've never been in therapy. Maybe the, I could figure out why I'm writing all these songs. But uh, but yeah, yeah, a lot of my songs are, are very twisted. Uh, a lot of a lot of the characters. Uh, the protagonists of some of these songs are just straight up psychopaths. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know why. That just comes out of my brain. My guest today is Weird Al Yankovic. This is World Cafe. When you make music uh, that is funny, when you do comedy, um, you know, you're a very successful musician. You've won Grammys. You've, you know, gone platinum. But is it hard to be, to feel like you're taken seriously by the music world? And is that even something that you would want? Well, you want to be taken seriously enough that people will still, you know, allow you to do tours and, and they'll still allow you to put out your, your records and they'll, they'll still allow you to do, to do the things you want to do. Um, I mean, looking for respect is not something that's like <laughs> at the forefront of my mind. I, I know that I've got a, a fan base and, and fans that respect what I do and whether like the entire world respects me, that's, <laughs> that's never going to happen anyway, but that's, that's, that's not like the way I do it. I'm just, trying to have fun and have a laugh and uh, amuse a few people. And some people get it and some people don't. We're going to close out with a new song from the movie, Now You Know. What were the points of reference when you were writing this song? Um, 
<laughs> I wanted to write like a blues rock song with a 7-4 time signature just because I thought that would be kind of fun. And uh, you should probably turn your radio off right now if you haven't seen the movie yet because there are some <laughs> big spoilers in this song. But this, this place at the end of the movie, it kind of wraps it up. It confirms that, oh, yes, everything you just saw and heard is absolutely true. <laughs> now you know from Weird Al on World Cafe. Yeah, that's how it all went down, bro. We proof checked every fact. If you still don't believe it, well, no skin off my back. Just don't call me a liar. Cause shut up, you weren't there. That was Now You Know, a new song from Weird Al Yankovic from the film Weird, the fictional parody musical biopic about his life. Weird Al Yankovic has been my guest today. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much, Al. Thank you. I'm Raina Duras, back in a moment with more World Cafe.